also looked in lesson number two at the number two. We talked about the two turtle doves. We talked about the two visits to the temple that were encountered in Luke chapter two in early in Jesus' life. We talked about how they went to the temple for Jesus' barit milah, or his circumcision rite and naming. And we also saw how they went to the temple for Mary's purification, carrying the required two turtle doves for the sin offering and the burnt offering that these represented, as well as the observance of Jesus' pidyon habin, or the redemption of the firstborn ceremony. We talked about how ironic it is that the redeemed became the redeemer with a much greater cost than five shekels of silver. He redeemed us with the price of his own blood. So tonight, we want to look at the number one in our final lesson of the Countdown to the Manger series. The number one I think of being the manger. There was one manger. The story, familiar story we've all read many times and could probably quote some of, is in Luke chapter 2. I'd like to read that to us again now in preparation for this lesson. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place when Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem or Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch, over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign unto you, you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with, with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God, for all the things that they had seen, they had heard and seen, as it was told them. Very familiar passage, 
let's look at some things that may not be so familiar to us. We know that Joseph and Mary, according to this passage, came from Nazareth to be registered under this census. We're told that there was no room for them in the inn. This may or may not be the same as what we might think of today. Remember, times were different then. So some possible understandings of that. Perhaps it was similar. Perhaps it was a house for travelers. It could have been that there was the inn in Bethlehem. Now, I found it interesting recently in, a, in a, another study I'm doing or another reading that I was doing. In 2 Samuel 19, there's a man mentioned there called Kimhan. He is a son or grandson of Barzillai, and he was a man that had extended kindness to David. David blessed him and provided and blessed Kimhan on behalf of Barzillai. And so he was given territory in the Bethlehem area. And according to uh, the Jewish research that I did, he did in, in fact have a house that came to be known as the Inn of Bethlehem. In Jeremiah 41:17, it's spoken of as the habitation of Kimhan. And it was there associated with a flight into Egypt. So it, surpri it, it surprised me a little bit and intrigued me some. I don't know if this was the place that perhaps there was no room for them in that inn because it was full because, remember, everyone was having to return to the place of their birth for this census. Perhaps it was the house that the wise men came to from which Joseph and Mary had to flee to Egypt as well as those spoken of in Jeremiah 41:17. We do not know. We do know that there was no room for them in whatever this inn represented. Perhaps it meant there was no room in a family house or a group of homes. Perhaps there was no place that in a lodging or a family home where a pregnant woman could deliver because as soon as she delivered, she would have defiled everything on which she sat. Everything there would have had to been ceremonially cleansed. So where was this manger that Jesus was laid in? Although there's very little proof, if any, that remains of much of the details. Much of this is due to time, also the destruction in Jerusalem, and various circumstances over the last 2,000 years have taken away from us some of the things that could answer some of these questions. So varying theories abound. I personally have a belief about this I'd like to share with you, and I'd like to share from Scripture why I tend to support this. Although, I recognize it is only one theory among many others that are also worthy of prayerful consideration. It could, this manger could have been, as is traditionally thought, a stable or a place where animals were kept, such as travelers' animals, perhaps at this inn in Bethlehem. It could have been a cave near Bethlehem where animals would have been kept and or birthed. It could have been in or near the tower of the flock as prophesied by Micah where sacrificial lambs were birthed. It could have been a lower section of a family's home where animals would have been kept or birthed and where a manger might have been. I'd like to comment on a few of these 
in light of my ongoing Hebraic research and understanding. I'm constantly growing and enlightening in my understanding more and more. So we're unable to know for sure some of these things, but I share these as food for thought. And let's look closely at what we are told in Scripture and see what we can glean. In light of the Jewish religious practices and the devout um, honor that Joseph and Mary placed to the commandments of God and perhaps to their families in their love for them, perhaps Mary would not have stayed in a normal housing environment with her family due to the delivery of Jesus that was ensuing. Perhaps she did not want to make the home or the surroundings ceremonially unclean. So I could see how perhaps they would choose to be off by themselves. Perhaps they would need to be off by themselves. As to the end, Scripture does not tell us if, it was ever, if there was ever a cave or a stable offered to Mary and Joseph. It simply says that she bore her son and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. If the inn keeper, if they went to the inn and the inn keeper even offered the stable or what we might call the livery today, perhaps it was full as well because many of the travelers that were housed in the inn would have also had animals in that stable. In light of God the Father's knowledge of Jesus as the perfect sacrificial lamb foreshadowed throughout the Old Testament, I can see where he himself closed up all other places in Bethlehem so as to direct his son to be born where lambs were born. Here in the Luke passage and in the Matthew 2 passage, Micah's prophecy in chapter 5 is clearly brought out. However, it has come to my attention that there are some corresponding, uh, there's a corresponding prophecy in Micah 4.8 that many Jewish researchers and uh, scholars are understanding today that may be a hidden shadow of where Christ was born. In Micah 4.8, it says, And you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. Even the former dominion shall come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. It says that to you it shall come, the former dominion, or a kingship, representing the beginning of it by that word former. The Jews even believed and expected the Messiah to be announced from this tower of the flock. Not only would God direct Jesus, perhaps, to be born where lambs were born, but even more precisely, perhaps, where sacrificial lambs were born. The place where Jesus the Lamb would be born would be ceremonially clean, since perfect lambs had to be born there. Although we've accepted widely proclaimed ideas about this manger and where Jesus was born, and considering the scripture in the New Testament does not specifically state the exact place of it, then we simply offer this insight and research to help us understand 
God's Word better and see how this might fit with the whole of Scripture. So what is this tower of, a flock, of the flock that's spoken of here? Christian historian and early church leader Eusebius and other Jewish and Christian leaders have shown the importance of Migdal Idar in understanding more, and that's what this means, the Tower of the Flock. It was an ancient tower, first mentioned in the Bible in Genesis 35, 21, when Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin on the way to Bethlehem with Jacob. It overlooked the valley near Bethlehem and was a watchtower. The Bible tells us that Jacob pitched his tent near this tower of the flock after her death and after her burial. In Bible times near Jesus' birth date, it was used by shepherds. But these shepherds were not ordinary shepherds, and the sheep that they had were not ordinary sheep. These were special shepherds trained in raising sheep that were destined for temple sacrifices especially for Passover and feast. These sheep had to be absolutely perfect with no blemish, and these shepherds had great responsibility to see to that. The lower section of this Migdal Idar, or this Tower of the Flock, was ceremonially clean as the sacrificial ewes birthed their lambs there. The shepherds kept it ceremonially clean and ready, these temple shepherds would take the ewes who were about to give birth to their lambs into this Migdal Idar for protection. They would birth their lambs, which were destined for sacrifice here in this tower of the flock. How fitting. These shepherds also knew from rabbinical training <clears throat> that the Messiah might well be proclaimed and announced from the Tower of the Flock, based on Micah 4.8 prophecy. This tower, <coughs> this tower was about four miles from Jerusalem and about one mile from Bethlehem, and it was in between the two. The shepherds, when they would birth these lambs, would wrap the lambs in swaddling clothes, strips of cloth that they would tightly wrap up the lambs with, so that the lambs could not thrash around and get any blemishes or defects. They had to be perfect to be sacrificed to God. Once they wrapped them in swaddling clothes, they laid them in the manger to protect them. Notice also in the angel's message to the shepherds what the angels did not say. They did not give them precise directions. When God needs to give someone precise directions, he does. We have a record of that in the book of Acts. But these shepherds who took ewes there to birth lambs destined for sacrifice in the temple knew exactly where to go to find this manger from the angel's word. In light of this revelation, perhaps they also knew what it meant. Perhaps they realized that he was the lamb that all of the other thousands of lambs born there and sacrificed previously had prefigured. I believe in light of these documented Jewish revelations and taking both Luke 2, Micah 4, and Micah 5 prophecies, that perhaps this is most likely 
the place where either Jesus was born, or at least in this area of the, of the tower where he was announced by the angels to these possible temple shepherds. My personal feeling is that this perhaps is the place he was most likely born. Consider these points. Micah prophesies about this and reveals to them in that prophecy that as surely as the captivity was coming, just as surely the Messiah would be born and would be told in the tower of the flock. Now keep in mind that this prophecy was some 700 plus years before Messiah ever arrives. Also, bear in mind, thousands of ewes birthed lambs in this same tower for centuries. These were special ewes cared for by special shepherds who birthed special sheep, sacrificial lambs. These shepherds knew about the Migdal Idar, or the Tower of the Flock. Perhaps they also knew about the prophecies about Messiah, especially those in Micah 4 and 5. These shepherds also knew exactly what must be done and how to care for these sacrificial sheep so that they would have no blemish or defect and they could be sacrificed to God. God saw to it that his perfect lamb was born in such a place. I believe perhaps this same place that all the other sacrificial lambs before him were born. He was the ultimate fulfillment of all of those others. These shepherds, temple shepherds, watching over the sacrificial sheep, kept watch night and day all year long. Notice the angel's proclamation to them. No fear. Good tidings of great joy for all people. Born this day in Bethlehem, or the city of David, which they knew to be Bethlehem. The Savior, the promised Messiah, Christ the Lord, the Messiah. And notice that this was the son, a babe, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. There were no other specific directions given. But in Acts chapter 9, verse 11, we see where God tells a man named Ananias, go to a street called Beautiful. When it's necessary for specific directions, God will see to it that there are specific directions given. I believe these shepherds didn't need any more direction than the three points of the sign they were given. They knew exactly where to go to find him when the angel gave them that sign. That was all they needed. They also knew, I believe, what this meant. Perhaps they knew it was prophetic about Jesus' ultimate purpose and fulfillment that he was the sacrificial lamb, born for one purpose, to die as our sacrifice. The shepherds reply, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, perhaps referring to Micah 4.8, prophecies being fulfilled. The shepherds become evangelists, according to Luke 2, verse 17 and 18. They shared this good news. They shared the fulfillment of Micah's prophecy. They shared who Jesus was. People marveled in awe and wonder. Yet Mary kept these things and pondered them. I'd love to have been a fly on the wall of her mind at that time. Perhaps she became aware from the shepherds of what this manger signified. I don't know. 
But I'm sure she had much to think about. The Bible tells us then that the shepherds returned to their fields, praising God and glorifying him. Wow, how beautiful God's story is and how intricate the portrait he paints. Jesus' death is undeniably and inevitably tied to his birth and perhaps even to his birthing place. It's as if the angel said to them, you're watching over the sheep destined for sacrifice in the temple, but the real lamb is here, and you'll find him where sacrificial lambs are born. Consider one other point as we pick up from the last two lessons. In the previous lessons, we considered some of the possible applicable offerings as required in Leviticus, the five basic offerings that the, the Jews were required to offer, and how these were present perhaps at Jesus' birth in some form or another. We looked at the grain offering, possibly, in connection with the three gifts the Magi brought. We looked at the burnt offering and the sin offering that were specifically represented in the two turtle doves for Mary's purification offering as required in Scripture. There are two primary offerings that remain, the peace offering and the trespass offering. I believe that in this encounter we see at least one of those present. Let's look at this peace offering briefly. The peace offering seems evident here in the account recorded by the angels for the shepherds and the visit of the shepherds to the Christ child. The peace offering is defined for us in several passages in Leviticus. It's also in several passages in Exodus. It's found in Numbers 10.10 10, and in Deuteronomy 27.7 is spoken of. From all of these scriptures, we can glean the following points that may apply to Christ's birth. There was thanksgiving and joy in this offering. It was freely given. It was a free will offering. It was eaten or partaken of that same day. It could not wait until morning. Remember the shepherds said, let us go immediately. They went immediately that night to see what had happened. Clean flesh could eat it. When it was given on the altar, God promised to come and bless those who were offering the peace offering. It was a voluntary sacrifice of thanksgiving. It was a high and lifted excuse me, high and lifted up offering or a wave offering. It was perfect with no defects. Trumpets were blown over the peace offerings as memorial in celebration of gladness. And these were sacrificed and meant to eat and rejoice before the Lord, according to Deuteronomy 27.7. Christian references make note about the peace offering. In the temple, its ministry and services, Alfred Idersham says, the most joyous of all sacrifices was the peace offering. Or, as from its derivation, it might also be rendered the offering of completion. This was indeed a season of happy fellowship with the covenant God in which he condescended to become Israel's guest at the sacrificial meal. The sacrificial meal was the point of main importance. It is this offering this sacrifice, which is so frequently referred to in the book of Psalms as the grateful homage of a soul justified and accepted before God. The offering of completion indicated that there was complete peace with God. In the theological word book of the Old Testament, 
he says there are three main lines of thought here. First, the peace offering symbolizes the gift of shalom, or the blessing of wholeness, prosperity, and the status of being at peace with God. This involves more than forgiveness of sins. In that fullness of life, prosperity and peace with men is the expected result of shalom status. The second, he says, is a communion sacrifice, one in which there is a sharing of the sacrificial animal and the resultant fellowship around such, a sense of joyful sharing because of God's presence. And thirdly, some argue this was a concluding sacrifice. The New Testament references to Christ our peace, such as in Ephesians 2.14, become more meaningful as he is the final or complete sacrifice for us. In Sparkling Gems, Rick Renner, a noted Greek scholar, has this to say. He expresses, he says peace in the New Testament expresses the idea of wholeness, completeness, or tranquility in the soul that is unaffected by outward circumstances or pressures. It is a calm inner stability that results in the ability to con conduct himself peacefully, even though circumstances normally would be very nerve-wracking, traumatic, or upsetting. From all of these scripture references and various commentators, as well as such scriptures as Romans 5.1 and Ephesians 2.14, I believe the angels and the shepherds all participated in and or brought the peace offering at Jesus' birth. Notice these points from Luke. There was great joy and glad tidings. There was lots of singing and praising God, glorifying God in the highest. There was proclaiming peace on earth to men who welcomed God's Son and His peace. The shepherds came and worshipped. The shepherds shared a time of fellowship with Mary and Joseph and the baby, which was also a part of this offering, as well as the giving of thanks, which was also shared. The shepherds told about the baby Jesus and what they knew of him. They evangelized, sharing the news and waving it around in praise and glory to God. They came that same day, that same night, and worshipped. There was a great celebration of joy and praise in this encounter. It seems very clear to me that the peace offering was evident with the angels and the shepherds. What about the trespass offering? Well, let's notice a few points about it. It was a trespass offering, an offering for specific sins or trespasses, whereas the sin offering was for the whole of the sinner. The trespass offering was an offering of guilt or fault. It could be understood as to make us liable for retribution, for specific acts. It was not because the person was evil, but that they had done an evil act. An offering for one specific act, the ransom for a special wrong. There were various forms of trespass addressed in Leviticus 5. One of those trespasses is not to tell of an oath or a fact when you know of it. I'm not sure if this trespass offering was actually present at Christ's birth, but I want to share a few points with you. Obviously, even as pious as these shepherds may have been, perhaps they were very devout, very God-fearing. They were still human, prone to sin and prone to trespass. They were aware of their need for sacrifices as well. Perhaps they brought themselves as a trespass offering without the slaying of an animal. Perhaps now they understood 
that he would be the sacrificial lamb. Perhaps they knew he was the fulfillment of all the five required offerings spoken of in Leviticus. Perhaps they wanted to get cleansed of any trespass they had and they came and worshipped him. Perhaps they simply came in thanksgiving also for the peace offering and were convicted and realized they wanted to be cleansed of all sin and trespass. Perhaps one reason they became immediate evangelist was to avoid committing the trespass of not telling of a fact or an oath when they knew of it. Whether it's clear or not the trespass offering was there, it is evident to me that this entire encounter is certainly ripe with the peace offering and its resulting gratitude and joy. What a night. What an ordinary yet extraordinary night for these skilled shepherds who were accustomed to watching over sacrificial sheep. What a message for them to receive that the long-awaited Messiah is finally here and they will know exactly where to find him and now they may know exactly who he is. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as John the Beloved called him. And they will find him where the sacrificial lambs were born, wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in the manger. Once they came and worshipped him, they too were changed by his presence. They left rejoicing and evangelizing. They returned to their place different and better than before. And they shared in the joyous celebration of this peace offering, worshiping the one who is our peace. They will proclaim him to others and tell of this wonderful oath born and fulfilled this night in that manger. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb of God. John the Baptist declared it, who takes away the sin of the world. He is our peace and the once-for-all offering for sin and trespasses. God, I believe, saw to it that he was born in the very place that sacrificial lambs were born and that the peace offering God shared with the world was proclaimed to the shepherds and by the shepherds. Praise God that the Lamb of God has come and the complete sacrifice has been done for us. Even in the very moment and location of Jesus' birth, his death is imminent and inseparable. Praise God for the Lamb. Thank you for joining me for this Countdown to the Manger series. I trust it has been a blessing to you, and I look forward to spending other time with you in other series as we go along. God bless you.